0: In the late summer of 1977, NASA launched two space probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, from Cape Canaveral in Florida. And 12 and a half years later, on Valentine's Day of 1990, Voyager 1, having traveled about 6 billion kilometers from the Earth, took a series of photos. One of those photos was a photo of the Earth, and it was taken just 34 minutes before Voyager 1's cameras were turned off forever. And eventually that photo was given the title, the pale blue dot. And I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the photo, and if you're not and you're Googling it right now, at first, it may not seem like it's a photo of anything much. It's just some odd-colored bands of light across a dark background. But in one of those bands of light is a single dot. It's smaller than a pixel of the photograph, and that's Earth. That's what we look like from six billion kilometers away, a wee dot barely visible. And when we consider that photograph and really the vastness of space in general, you can't help but be taken aback by our relative smallness in the grand scheme of things, like how seemingly insignificant and fragile we are. And it kind of seems counterintuitive, maybe even a little bit self-absorbed to think that an all-powerful creator of the cosmos would give a hoot about what happens on this pale blue dot or to any of its inhabitants. And yet, from his own self-revelation, from scripture and from the life of Jesus, we know that he cares quite a bit. And it's that idea that David reflects on in Psalm 8. In verses 3 to 6, he writes this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor." You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And as we pick up our series in Hebrews 2 this week, in verses 6 to 8, if you turn there with me, we're going to find that the author of Hebrews is quoting this psalm. He's reflecting on this startling position that humans have in the eyes of the Father. And recall from last week that one of our main themes that we're exploring in the book of Hebrews, one of the main themes that the author writes about is this theme that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. That's the idea. And in chapter two, the author is concluding his argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior not only to the law and to the old covenant, but he's also um, superior to the messengers that actually brought the law in the first place. And so in chapter one, last week, we saw that the author was stringing together a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures. And he was making the point that Jesus, the Messiah, he's God himself and he has divine nature and being the creator of the universe, he comes from an exalted position high above us all to begin with and high above angels in the first place. And then in chapter two, in verse five and following, he's kind of putting the the cherry on top of that argument. He alludes to an idea in verse five that he's going to revisit later in this book, this idea of a world to come or a city to come. It's the idea that from this side of eternity, we look forward to a time when the kingdom of God is fully established, a time when everything that is wrong with the world will be put right, a time when the fullness of what it means for God to be king will be established and it will be realized. And the author of Hebrews points out that in that kingdom, it's not the angels that will have dominion. That world will not be subject to them. No, it will be made subject to Jesus because he is better. In him, the original intention for mankind will be and is fulfilled. And this makes Jesus superior to the angels. And this whole point he makes by starting um, with a reflection on Psalm 8. And on the idea that it kind of expounds that although humans are in a position a little lower than the angels, God intended to crown them with glory and honor, to give them dominion over the works of his hands. Psalm 8 is really a reflection um, on the original cultural mandate that we find in Genesis chapter one, where we read, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, Genesis lays out God's original plan for mankind. He chose to place his image, his likeness, into the inhabitants of this pale blue dot, and he wanted them to be his vice regents, his representatives, his governors, his overseers, to have dominion and authority to rule the earth and to demonstrate what it was like when God and his people were in charge. And again, that's the idea that Psalm 8, and then which is in turn quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, it's reaffirming that God intended this for humans. Even though that they were, they were lower than the angels, they would somehow occupy this special place. God intended that they should be given dominion over the world. And then if we look in, in chapter 2, going on into verse 8, the author reflects further on this. And he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So in that last line of verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The author is kind of identifying that our experience in this life, it kind of mocks the sentence prior to it, like humans are not in control. N.T. Wright summarizes the, the reflection that the author is doing in this way. He says, the psalm speaks of humankind in general as set in authority over the world with everything subjected to him. But, says Hebrews, this clearly hasn't happened yet. Humans are not ruling the world. They are not bringing God's order and justice to bear on the whole of creation. Everything is still in a state of semi-chaos. How then can this psalm be taken seriously? And this reflection, we know this intuitively, like all is not right with the world. Things are not the way that they should be. We know that there is more to the story beyond Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We know that when we arrive at Genesis 3, we have the fall of humanity. And that fall has corrupted us, it's corrupted our role in the world, and the fallout has been immense. And you don't have to think for very long to come up with some evidence of this. I mean, like quite literally, as I was preparing this portion of the message this week, I felt like I watched this whole truth, that things are not the way they should be. I watched it play out in front of my eyes. I saw the images that we all did of demonstrators breaching security at the U.S. Capitol building, storming inside. I watched windows broken with riot shields and flashbangs being deployed by law enforcement. We all read headlines like, Trump supporters overwhelm police with chemical irritants, and U.S. Capitol in lockdown amid violent clashes. And then I listened to these heated reactions and condemnations coming from the other side of the political aisle. And honestly, the whole thing kind of made me a little bit emotional. It just made me sad to see all of this happening and unfolding before my eyes. And all I could really think was, man, this is not how things are supposed to be. But even before this week, I'm certain that the last year has solidified for all of us something we already knew, that we are not ultimately in control And if the events of the last 12 months weren't enough, we have plenty of examples throughout history that demonstrate that all is not right with the world. There's plenty of corroborating evidence that God's intention for humans that he outlined in Genesis 1 has been thwarted by the events of Genesis 3. The fall has tainted God's image in humanity. Kent Hughes, quoting G.K. Chesterton, puts it this way, Whatever else is true about man, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. And so, N.T. Wright's question still stands. How can this psalm be taken seriously? Well, the author of Hebrews offers an answer. He basically says, because of Jesus. Let's turn to Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10. There it says this, But we see him who for a little while... Was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Psalm 8 really only makes sense. If we take a decidedly Christological or messianic reading of it, when we look at it considering the person and work of Jesus Christ, he has gone before humanity as our representative to take hold of God's original intention, winning victory over sin and death, which had previously prevented us from fulfilling the role which God had set out for us. Jesus humbled himself, he became a little lower t- than the angels. For us as humans, being a little lower than the angels is actually kind of speaking to God's um, high view of humanity in general. It's an honor. But for Jesus, it represented a massive step down. And yet he chose to do so, taking on human flesh and ultimately became willing to suffer and die on our behalf. Therefore, says Paul in Philippians, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow. After humbling himself to the point of death, Jesus is exalted. He's crowned with glory and honor. And as the psalm says, everything has been put in subjection to him. He has, fu- he has fulfilled God's intention for humans. N.C. Wright goes on and says, Jesus is the representative of the human race. His exaltation as Lord after his earthly ministry, suffering and death has placed him in the role marked out from the beginning, For the human race. He has gone ahead of us into God's future, the future in which order and justice, saving order and healing justice, will come to the world. The exaltation of Jesus and the fact that we who follow him can celebrate that and live in light of it is one of the major themes of the whole book of Hebrews. And you'll notice in in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2 that the author refers to Jesus as the founder of our salvation. Now like most Greek words, there's multiple ways that that could be translated. Um, The ESV chose the word founder, but another commentator points out that a possible rendering of this word is the word champion, and that that word actually makes more sense given the cultural context. You see, the word champion might have called uh, to mind for readers a concept of a divine hero uh, that we see in Greek mythology, someone like Hercules. Now today, when, when we hear Hercules, we might first think of that 1990s Disney movie, but in Greek mythology, which many of the readers might have been familiar with, one of the most famous traditions we see uh, for Hercules is when he wrestled with death to save Eccleston. This This story might have been what came to mind when the readers of Hebrews heard Jesus referred to as their champion, and If you think about someone wrestling with death, I mean, the parallels aren't hard to see. But there was also another strand of tradition that they may have been familiar with, and one which we in the Christian tradition also might be more familiar with than Greek mythology. There was this practice in ancient warfare where conflicts were settled um, by a contest of champions. Each army would select one or two representatives, and these champions would fight. And then by proxy, the winners of that smaller fight would earn victory for their entire army. And so that tradition provided for the Old Testament prophets the foundation by which they could call God the champion of Israel. But for us it might also call to mind the story of David and Goliath because in 1 Samuel 17:4 Goliath is referred to as the champion for the Philistines. And then we see that David ended up as the champion for Israel. And his defeat of Goliath meant, by extension, Israel's defeat of the Philistines. So these traditions might be what came to mind when the author names Jesus the champion of our salvation. He has stepped up in our place and fought this cosmic battle, the fight against sin, evil, and death, which has previously held us back and enslaved us. And so that's why we read in verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Just like David won the victory for Israel through an unexpected means of just a sling and a stone, by the grace of God, Christ has won the victory for us by his death on the cross and then his subsequent resurrection. I mean, this is the basic message of the gospel, that Christ has stepped in as our representative and done what we couldn't have done for ourselves. Another possible rendering of that word founder is the word pioneer, which carries with it this idea of one who leads the way, one who goes first into a new place uh, to settle an area or to mark out the path for those who will come afterwards. And I was thinking, a few weeks ago, I was hiking on the Bruce Trail. And for anybody who's hiked the Bruce Trail, or really any other trail for that matter, you'll know that often, along trails, there are markings called blazes. These markings are spaced out periodically on trees, and they're to help you stay on the trail to make sure that you're going the right way. They'll show you the way forward, and they'll even tell you when to make a left or a right turn. Now, for the Bruce Trail, prior to the 1960s, there, was no such mark- there were no such markings. It hadn't been established yet. Nobody had blazed the trail. So there would have been no way to really find your way along that route, along the escarpment. Someone had to go ahead to blaze the trail to mark out the way. And sometimes as I was walking a couple weeks ago, I was really glad that someone had done so. Because even today, in certain places on the trail, it would be hard to find your way if there weren't those markings, especially when the whole footpath is covered in snow. And this blazing the trail, this going before us, is really what Christ has done. He's marked out the way. He's marked out the path. He's removed the obstacles. He's cut down the brambles. He's cleared the way. As, a, as the pioneer of our salvation, he has gone ahead of us and shown us the way back to life. And he's already settled. In fact, he's enthroned in God's new world. Darcy outlined last week that We don't really know a whole lot about the details of the book of Hebrews in terms of who the author was and who the audience was um, or even precisely when it was written but there are several lines of evidence that suggest the letter was maybe written to a a small group of of Hebrew believers um, maybe a house church and it was probably written between 60 and 70 AD and they were in crisis and the exact nature of the crisis isn't totally known but there's clues throughout the book that this group or, or people that they knew had been subject to persecution, they had lost life, they had lost property, um, their hope was faltering, and that maybe there was some that it were even contemplating or had walked away from the faith. They are probably second-generation Christians, not immediate eyewitnesses of Christ, and they're starting to wonder, like, what did we sign up for? And, and this kind of makes sense given the potential historical context that we're talking about there. I mean, in that decade... Apostles were being martyred. Um, Nero was the emperor of Rome, and he was blaming Christians for this fire in AD 64. And the whole decade is moving towards the ultimate destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so I don't think it's a far stretch for us to assume that these believers might have been saying to themselves, This is not how things are supposed to be. Like, has God's kingdom really come? Hebrews shows us that the answer to that question is well yes and no. We as the first century Christians did, we live in this tension, this already but not yet sort of kingdom. No, on one hand things are are not totally as they should be. Sin and death have done a number on our character and our morality as the human race and and really on creation itself. We are not yet living in the fullness of what God intended for us. And yet the author of Hebrews encourages his audience and us to not dwell on the not yet, but to instead look to the already. Because in some sense, the kingdom has come. We don't on this earth need to fear disease and injury and death, because our champion has won the victory of these things. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. And on earth, we don't need to be enslaved by any vice or by any legalistic pursuit of a virtue to try to earn our righteousness. No, our champion has broken those chains of slavery. He has set us free and he has blazed a trail so we can follow him home. And we don't need to be paralyzed by worry over things that are outside of our control because our king is already exalted. He is already on the throne. Our champion has won the victory, the pioneer has blazed the trail, and Christ is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And he guarantees our hope for a better tomorrow, a better city, a city to come. And as we walk through life here, we live in this tension of the already-not-yet. But in that, Randy Alcorn writes this to encourage believers, in the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next, and we take solace whenever it does not. Now, all of this theology, all of this description of Christ as the representative head of humanity, the one who has secured us uh, the hope of the world to come, this is all really good, and hopefully it's encouraging and comforting. But the second half of Hebrews chapter 2, in that portion of the passage, the author develops this point develops a point that kind of deepens this truth, deepens this comfort, and it's something that we should have fresh in our minds because we've just celebrated it with Advent, that this founder, this champion of our salvation, he goes by another name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. The comfort that there is a future hope, it comes to us from someone who has walked among us, Christ did not deliver victory from a place of far-off superiority. No, in fact, he came quite near. His identification with us, his solidarity with us, his willingness to become like one of us. It's reiterated consistently from verses 11 through the end of Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 11, we see we all have one source. In verse 12, Jesus calls us brothers. In verse 14, he partook of flesh and blood. In verse 17, he was made like us in every respect. And then finally, the end of the chapter in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our champion was one of us, the pioneer shared in our weakness. What this means is, is that the comfort he offers because of his ultimate victory, the hope we have because he's on the throne, it isn't one that says, oh, cheer up, things will get better. No, it's one that says, I know, I've been there. When we experience uh, any kind of turmoil in our lives, the greatest comfort is often someone who has gone through the very same thing. It's why those who have lost children, born or unborn, are uniquely positioned to comfort those who experience the same tragedy. It's why, if you're in a tough spot in your marriage, you probably seek out other married couples for help. And it's why married folks should tread a little bit lightly when they're offering advice to their single brothers and sisters. Because there is something deeply impactful when you're going through a tough time and you hear someone say, I get it. And you can believe them. And when Jesus took on flesh and walked this earth, he experienced it all. He experienced loss, betrayal, temptation, and ultimately suffering and death. And on that cross, he took on himself all of the impacts of sin, all of the pain, all of the shame, all of the brokenness, all of the cosmic weight of those consequences. And in the midst of it, he cries out the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that psalm actually goes on. It says, My God, my God, why, are you, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. From the cross, Jesus is using this psalm to give words to his anguish to his pain, to the tension that he's experiencing. In some senses, a helpful paraphrase might be, where are you, God? This is not how it should be. But later on, the psalm has a turning point, like a lot of psalms do. If you read down to verse 22, this is what it says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now, look with me into Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 you'll see that the author cites this verse, the turning point of the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then in verse 13, he adds this citation from Isaiah 18. There's Isaiah 8, verse 18. I will put my trust in him. Here, the author is associating these words, these Old Testament words, with Christ. Christ. And particularly given the fact that Jesus also cried out in anguish from the cross using the beginning of this psalm, commentators point out that the author is making the point that Jesus is identifying with us in the need to, in the struggle to, trust God in times of difficulty. William L. Lane puts it this way. He writes that the citation in verse 13 served to stress that Jesus identifies himself with the community of faith in his absolute trust and dependence on God. The citation had immediate relevance for the hearers. The fact that Jesus' confidence was fully vindicated after he had experienced suffering and affliction assured them that they could also trust in God in difficult circumstances. You see, the author of Hebrews is not calling on us to ignore the brokenness of the world, but to acknowledge it and choose to trust God that in his promise that it will not end here. Because that's what Jesus did. The king of the Jews knew that his kingdom was not of this world. It was from another place. Likewise, our hope is not in this world. We are citizens, but citizens of a different country, a different city, city a city to come. The pioneer who went before us to prepare a place for us, the founder, the champion of our faith, he wasn't an angel. No, the truth is far better than that. He's Emmanuel. God himself, but one of us. And when we're faced with the difficult reality that things are not the way that they are supposed to be, he says, trust me, I know I've been there, but I've already won the victory. Let me show you the way home. And as he has shown us the way to life, the way to that city, to that home, let's show our families, our friends, our communities, what it's like to live there. Let's bring the hope, the culture, the way of life of that city to this pale blue dot. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us bring love. Where there is offense, let us bring pardon. Where there is discord, let us bring union. Where there is error, let us bring truth. Where there is doubt, let us bring faith. Where there is despair, let us bring hope. Where there is darkness, let us bring your light where there is sadness. Let us bring joy. Amen.